right, welcome up, Jace Lane Schwartz, published author, preacher, and handsome man. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's been quite some time since I've uh, been up here, so it's good to see you all. For those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Jace Lane Schwartz. <laughs> um, I served as a pastor here for several years, but stepped down in September to sort of focus my time as a dad and a husband. Um, I volunteer downstairs um, in VK. I'm a Bible professor at Warner Pacific University, um, as well as a young, naive writer. But occasionally, I still have the privilege to teach you all from the stage. So these moments are always a joy. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. Um, because of time, I'm going to be popping around a little bit in order to just highlight uh, today's um, main points, but I will do my best to be your guide and tell you where I'm going. <clears throat> so we're just going to jump in. You ready? We have a lot of ground to cover, and we're going to start reading in the middle of the Old Testament. So we got to just we got to go for it. Starting in verse one of First Samuel chapter one, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, son of Elihu son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. That's a funny sentence to me. I don't know if it's a funny sentence to you guys. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And her rival, meaning Hannah's rival, Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Penina used to provoke Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So the book of Samuel opens with this scene. Um, these two wives who are bitter rivals are forced to live alongside each other in their marriage to Elkanah. Penina, we discover, is able to bear children, which, uh, most of you know, infused her identity and status um, and worth in the ancient world with, like, the utmost value. In this patriarchal culture, uh, Penina was a beacon of success because she was able to bear her husband's children. Hannah, however, cannot have kids, and so the story tells us found herself at the bottom of the food chain. Um, now, if you've ever read the Bible before, then you know it has the tendency to skimp on details. This isn't a Dickens novel where you have these like really memorable descriptions of these like classic characters, nor is it a Tolkien novel where you have these epic descriptions of like a mountain or a river. This is the Bible. And often, all we know is there was a man named Elkanah, and he had two wives. <laughs> Got it. Which means, then that when you encounter a story where the author really takes the time to describe something to you, we would do well to pay attention because biblical authors are extremely careful in their writing. They're highly selective in their vocabulary. They're economic, they're poetic, and they're highly strategic. So let's pause to appreciate the details which go into the sketch of Hannah and her situation. Hannah isn't just sad. The author would have said, Hannah was sad. There's a Hebrew word for sad. No, this is different. Here we have Penina who would provoke her grievously to irritate her. In English, this ought to have a very, very similar effect to what it does in Hebrew. But just so you know, the Hebrew word irritate is the word ra'am. <clears throat> and it carries this idea of distortion. Like when a storm is flooding over the sea, it ra'ams the surface of the sea. It distorts it. Um, or like what a face does if it gets in pain. Your face ra'ams, distorts. And so if something is distorted or smashed or pressed down or ra'amed, it becomes a picture of like humiliation. It's been altered. It's, someone is humiliated, distorted. So here's the point. Hannah's not just sad. Hannah's broken. The description develops further. Keep reading. Go to verse 9. 
After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So again, the lengths the author is going to to properly sketch a picture of Hannah are extensive. When you total up the idea of being provoked to the point of like distorted humiliation, and you read here that Hannah wasn't just sad, she's deeply distressed and was weeping bitterly, a picture should come to our mind. We're not talking about a beautiful, delicate, glistening Hollywood tear on the cheek. Like we're talking full-on ugly cry, like labored, panic attack style breathing with emotion that physically hurts the body and keeps one from actually living, keep, keeps her from food. Maybe some of you have felt grief or sadness like this. So watch, watch what happens next. She vowed a vow. She said, oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. This, by the way, is a quotation of the Exodus story, and she's identifying with the slaves in Egypt. This is the level of pain. But you'll um, give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. We don't have time. You can go read the Old Testament for that context. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, watch this, watch this. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Like this. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long are you going to keep being drunk? Put your wine away. Nice, Eli. Way to read the room. <laughs> so here the scene develops. On the one hand, we have Hannah, who has reached the end of her capacity to fake a happy existence. Her limits are laid bare for all the world to see, and she's having a violent emotional breakdown, now in public, because opposite her stands Eli. Now, we'll come to find out later that Eli is opposite Hannah in every way. Um, she's this small, you can go next slide. <clears throat> Turns out clip art doesn't have barren woman or ancient Israel priest. So this is a strange photoshopping of clip art happening. Um, um, she, she's this small, like weeping, humiliated, distorted thing. And he is one of the, he is one, like the power player. In, in Israel, a very big, very large, generously sized man. And the author wants to highlight the difference between these two characters. They're like, the, the description on them is turned up because Samuel's doing something for you. The broken and lowly, the proud and lofty. And it's from this lofty, powerful position that Eli makes a poor judgment call. From his comfortable position, he looks at the ugly, emotive display of Hannah and determines something in his own heart. What a worthless drunk. Keep reading. Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I, look at this. I haven't been pouring anything in. In fact, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. So do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my more emotion language. Look at this. Great anxiety and vexation. This is unprecedented emotional language for the biblical authors. It's off the charts. Then Eli answered, okay, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your, favor find, let your servant find favor in Hebrew, Hannah, her name, Hannah, in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So what just happened in this story? The author goes to extensive lengths to present you with this character, Hannah, who is not just emotional. We're talking on your face, shaking, can't eat, snot, tears, full transparency, I'm in pain, I cannot lie about it or cover it up or pretend it's not real, God help me pain. And opposite her sits Eli, who is, at first, incredibly uncomfortable with that display. <clears throat> the author of Samuel is establishing a scene for us, 
and he's planting breadcrumbs for the development of a dynamic which will be repeated over and over and over again throughout the book of First and Second Samuel. And it all has to do with a word that was used strategically in verse 12. Let me show you. I highlighted it here. The author of 1 Samuel is going to take great interest in this notion of the heart. He's not the first author to tune into it. Moses had a lot to say about the heart, and the prophets are very interested in it. But here we have a narrative which begins to tease out what is meant by the heart and how God intended for it to function. The English word heart is the most common translation for the Hebrew word lev or levav. And um, similar to its English translation, lev or levav has to do with like your inner core, the gut level sort of like inside essence of a person, their very being. The book of Samuel is going to be about this great search for a man who might rule God's kingdom a man after God's own, nice, some of you know, God's own heart. Um, well, what the heck does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but we know for certain that it's not the sort of heart we find in the first king of Israel, Saul, whose heart is a little less than savory, let's just say. So somehow the Hannah story launches the reader's expectations for the plot. Out of the heart flow the actions and behavior of people. And so the author presents us with the story of someone who puts their broken heart on display on the one hand, and then someone who is blind to the matters of the heart on the other hand, and then it presents you, the reader, with a question, which does God value? And will the king that we're looking for in the plot value the same thing? Will you, the reader, value the same thing? So we'll return to Hannah in a minute. Um, if you're... Joining us for the first time this morning, we're currently going through a series about emotionally healthy spirituality, which means we're spending a substantial amount of time talking about our feelings, our emotions, and we're contemplating a very basic though complex question. Does our emotional maturity match um, our spiritual maturity? In church, we often ask questions like, do we have faith? Are we doing good acts of service and justice for each other, for our community, and for the poor? Do we give regularly and show up to church and play an integral part in our community? Do we pray? Do we approve of the sermon? These are all good things. And yet, with this series, we're asking some more questions. Questions like, while we're doing those things, are we, behind closed doors, struggling with significant anger issues? Do we wrestle intensely with fear, anxiety, and depression? Do we find ourselves coming up against enormous snowbanks of shame and guilt as we trudge through the day? Are our hearts hard with bitterness, broken with loneliness, <clears throat> or raw with suffering? And do we know how to deal with that, if so? And if you're someone who's antsy about all the emotion talk around here lately, you'll have to forgive me for asking yet another question <laughs> to quote a cliche therapist. How do we feel about these feelings? But for real, do we feel okay with the disconnect between our intense anger issues and then volunteering at church every week? Are we even aware of a disconnect? Or maybe you don't have a disconnect at all. Maybe you're a perfectly emotionally healthy spiritual person. So how do you feel knowing that everyone around you is struggling with their feelings? <laughs> so for reasons which I do, okay, for reasons which I do sympathize with, um, and we've addressed this in weeks prior, if you've been coming, I understand that there is like good reason to like hold loosely your emotions and to think critically about them, and otherwise they can control your life. Like the world is fraught with stories of people who have drowned in, in their feelings, led poorly from their mismanaged or extreme feelings, or who've lost sight of reality because of their feelings. I get it. So a Christian's response to this can tend to be something like this. Take those thoughts captive. Speak the gospel over yourself. Recognize that you're not your emotions. There's truth. The truth will set you free. Okay, okay. But if you'll allow me just a gentle pushback here, I just want to say her name one more time. Hannah and Eli, David and Saul. You see, those stories aren't about just being emotional, uh, or being too emotional, or not emotional enough. This series... I would, wait, I would argue, isn't even about emotions in and of themselves, as if they're like the ultimate goal or point. Hannah's story is about reality. 
and which characters are telling the truth about reality or even aware of the truth about reality. These stories are about the reality of what it's like to live in this world and tell the truth about it. Today's message is about <clears throat> like limits we encounter in this life and then the grief and the suffering brought on when we come face to face with those limits. The death of a loved one, a terrible diagnosis, um, an unrelenting conflict, broken dreams, unrealized hopes and expectations. In other words, a life on planet Earth. As Christians, we believe two things simultaneously about a life like that. First, we boldly believe that that's not the way it's supposed to be. We believe in a good God, a good creation turned sour by sin and evil, but a good ending which is yet to come. So we don't accept those things as inherently good in that sense. But as Christians, we're also in the business of telling truth. And so we must boldly believe a second thing. This pain is real. This is reality. In a way, this series about being emotionally healthy spiritual people could be given another name. Tell the truth. Tell the stinking truth. This is Hannah. She did not lie. She was honest. And her honesty began to manifest itself in her physical body in the form of panic attacks and violent weeping, like potentially like physical pain. She was suffering. She was hurting. She was feeling grief at such a deep, visceral level that there was only one noble path forward. Get it out. Tell the truth. How? It was time to be honest with God. And it didn't matter what it looked like. And it was an ugly display. It was Eli who had no category in place for welcoming something like that. As far as he was concerned, God's temple presence was no place for displays of that kind. His immediate response to someone entering so deeply into their own emotions, their own suffering, was to judge it. As a good churchman, he felt it his responsibility to uphold the integrity of God. By golly, don't bring your mess around here. But Eli was a fool, and his sons were worthless. The Bible's words, not mine. <laughs> Hannah, though, spoke from her heart. And God, the book of Samuel says, does not see and judge how a man sees and judges. God looks at the heart, which means this. God gladly welcomes the human who tells the truth about what's going on. Today's message is about the gift of our limits, really learning how to acknowledge our limitations rather than denying them or begging God to change them to instead ask God, where are you? inside of them. Now, it's tricky. <laughs> this is tricky. Because in the case of Hannah, God came and changed her circumstances, didn't he? We'll get to that. But for now, what I want to do is I want to honor the text. I want to focus our attention on the very place that the author of 1 Samuel directs our attention, which is this. Right up until God changed Hannah's circumstances, he didn't. It's this space. And Hannah was telling the honest truth about the pain of living in that space and how she was breaking from the inside out. And the focus of the author is how painful that is. Limitations force us to tell the truth and to grieve and to be sad about the realities we find. But acknowledging our limits isn't just about our suffering. I want you to think back to the first book of the Bible with me, Adam and Eve, we're given the gift of one key limit in the garden. Don't eat of that tree or you'll die. You know the story. How are we to understand that command from God? We would be mistaken, I think, to imagine this limit of Adam and Eve as this like deep emotional or like physical form of suffering. They weren't in that sense like Hannah, like miserable. But they weren't entirely different either. Because for Hannah, it was time to be raw and vulnerable and acknowledge the limits of her own life and strength and purpose. And as she brought it to God, all this truthful pain was transformed into something new. Trust. Adam and Eve were in a slightly different boat, perhaps, as far as those emotions they were experiencing. Perhaps not. I don't know. I wasn't there. But the same task lay before them. Tell the truth about your reality. In other words, acknowledge this is your limit and that's the truth. That tree is off limits. 
that's your reality. And the act of doing those things, the act of talking about your limit, it makes us feel like we're dying, like painfully, when we have to acknowledge the limit. We don't want the limit. Something in us just hates to tell the truth about it. Clearly, that limit made Adam and Eve squirm, and that's precisely the thing that the serpent took a hold of. But compare Adam and Eve to Hannah again. If they, if they had told the truth about reality, about the tree, about what God had said, then they would have also found the same new true thing at the end of that really difficult task of naming the limit and telling the truth. That is, trust. They would have discovered a trust in God in the midst of acknowledging their limit. That's, not, that's beyond my limit, and I trust God that I'm not supposed to eat of that thing. You see, this temptation to preach truth to lies, to speak the gospel over the pain, it's a good instinct because the gospel is good news. But I'm convinced that more often than not, there is an inherent anxiety woven into the fabric of such an instinct. Whether we like it or not, we carry the potential in us to be like Eli. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want the bad news. And so when we hear that there's good news, we rejoice by golly and we pass it out like popcorn. I have these bad feelings. Well, what does the gospel say? I'm set free. Anxiety, shmanxiety. Nope. I'm, I'm angry all the time. Nope. I just need to read the Bible more. And we do this thing to ourselves. Now, don't hear me wrong. Some of us are really uncomfortable right now. I'm just going to trust that you'll find a way to hear what I'm saying and not misinterpret me. Preaching the gospel to yourself, reading the Bible more, those are great things. <laughs> like the Bible will tell you to do that. But this is my point. When Jesus got up on the mountain to preach his famous sermon, he was pretty clear. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. And do you know who gets it? The poor, the brokenhearted, the meek, the least of these, the pure in heart, the Hannahs of the world. What do all these people have in common? They're all telling the truth about the hard world they live in. They're all being honest that they're in pain, that nothing's worked, nothing's helped, and they're desperate. Then, after that confession, comes a spirit of trust. Only after the acceptance of reality does the gospel come. First comes truth about the suffering and the pain and the grief. We don't shy away from it. We don't run from it. We feel it. We feel it. We sit in it. And we tell the truth. This is my freaking reality. We grieve the limits of our bodies. We grieve the limits of our relationships. We grieve and lament and mourn the evil around us, the pain around us. We do not sugarcoat it. I think as Christians, we think, I was lost, but now I'm found. The end. I was honest about my lostness and my brokenness way back when. But since then, I'm a new creation, and therefore the only true thing I have to express to myself is the gospel, what Christ says about me. But hold on. How many epic failures have we witnessed from men and women who express that exact same sentiment, but who went on to hurt, abuse, and destroy others, and crumble themselves in the midst of their own folly? Weren't they new creations too? I don't think we're meant to tell the truth about pain, the pain of this world, only one time and one time only, and then meet Jesus one time and one time only, and then call it a day for the, or a life, because I'm saved, the end. What if the kingdom of God is at hand every day? And the task of the church actually is to learn how to become a people who are aware of the sad and the broken and the evolving world around us every day, to grieve and mourn it every day. And then every day, Welcome God's love and grace afresh, his mercies that are new every morning. So we tell the truth, then we wait. Sometimes we wait years, like the woman who bled, or the paralytic, or Hannah. But we never lie about it. We tell the truth about it. We live in that reality. Because only then can our spirits be properly attuned to the gracious appearance of a new reality, another truth, capital T truth, capital R reality. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And somehow he comes and he says, 
Blessed are you, the Hannahs of the world. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, But it's only the person who is aware of his or her limits who can receive the blessing. I'm sorry. It's this mysterious, like, magical conundrum built into the puzzle of God's grace and work in the world. If you try to strong arm it, wield it like a weapon, or shout it like a madman with no compassion for your audience, you won't find it, and your audience won't receive it. But when you tell the truth about limits, we're swept up in a spirit of trust, and there we find something else, too. With trust comes a spirit of freedom. Um, I recently listened to an interview with a visual artist who was talking about her experience in art school. Um, She said the best semester she had, the most fruitful, liberating semester of art school in her time as a student, was the one where she took a class about limits. Um, Her professor told them that beautiful, profound work grows in the furnace of limits. And then the professor said that for the rest of the semester, she was only allowed to work with three colors. For every assignment, every project, every time she produced anything for the entire semester, she was only allowed three colors, and she, get, she had to choose on day one of the class. <laughs> she spoke of how terrified she was at first. What about all the other colors? <laughs> she was a visual artist. She was in love with colors. But what she found, once she dug in, is a profound sense of trust and liberation that within these limits, a deeper and richer expression is possible. She was forced to engage with her craft at a more intimate level. She acknowledged reality, she accepted the truth of the limits, then came the trust, then came the freedom. The history of the church is utterly stained with stories of people who, in refusing to acknowledge their limits, in refusing to tell the truth about reality, instead destroy themselves and others in the name of God, pronouncing blessing when they should have been wearing sackcloth and ashes, sugarcoating or sidestepping when they should have been addressing the issues, or this classic one, people taking on more when they should have been honest about how they were burning their family out. But telling the truth is terrifying. Why? Well, because you feel like Hannah. You're afraid you're going to look like a worthless drunk, and you're going to feel like a worthless drunk for a minute. I am preaching, if you can't tell, from conviction this morning. As you all know, because I said it, several months ago I stepped down as an official pastor because I began to become aware of some like fierce limitations in my spirit to operate in the role as it was laid out to do the pastor thing as I had been doing it would have been to lie about the pain I was beginning to, I was feeling as I sort of began to walk in Hannah's footsteps, acknowledging the trauma of my past, the sadness I was feeling in my heart, the lack of capacity to do all the things. And to carry on would have been to lie about what I was feeling, despite telling myself that God was good, everything was going to be fine, the end. And I was terrified. I was terrified to let down my team. I was terrified to let you all down. I was terrified to tell the truth about (laughs) the feelings I was having and to say my fears out loud. I was terrified to look at 10 plus years of schooling and financial investment that went into a degree that was built up for one purpose, being a pastor. (laughs) Two Old Testament degrees, what do you do with that? And then say with honesty, I can't do this in this way, in this capacity. I cannot. I refuse. And there was just an unbelievable disconnect in my soul between me and my family, between me and you all, and between me and God. And I felt like God stopped the train (laughs) graciously, and he invited me to tell the truth rather than to buck up and keep plowing forward, where I would then burn myself out and leave my family scattered like shrapnel all around me. Turn and face your limits, Jace. That's what God began to tell me. 
the truth will set you free. What truth, God? The, the gospel? The one where you're like the king and in charge and like there's healing for me and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Jace, are you even aware of the places where you need healing? Turn and face your limits. Feel them. Face the truth about your reality. How do those limits make you feel? <laughs> Said Jesus. How do you feel about those feelings? Sad. It's okay to cry, he told me. And so I did. And I still am, baby. Jesus and I are still going. We're still just a weeping, the two of us. And here's the thing. It's not even about that decision to step down. That's like been released. And I feel such peace, such joy to be here in this capacity. It's about all the stuff we're uncovering together. It's about life in general. It's about the brokenness of this heart in your hearts. It's about this world and the death I see all around me. We just cry a lot these days. <laughs> and I don't know where we're going or what we're doing, but sometimes I don't really know how close he is, and sometimes I'm overwhelmed by how close he is. But here's my message for you today. It's okay to not know. It's okay to put the Band-Aids down, to stop trying to bandage everything up quickly with a prayer or a scripture or some slapdash good news in order to take a moment to actually step back and actually assess the extent of the damage, the depth of the wound. It's okay to not have a finished line in sight. Sometimes you're in the middle of suffering and you just don't feel better when people pray for you. And the worst thing we can do as Christians is to pile on shame to that person. Job didn't feel better in the presence of his friends. His friends. It's okay if the dark night of the soul and the long journey of learning how to turn and face the music about what's happening in your heart has a dot, dot, dot rather than a period. And if that's not you, like if you're genuinely just in a good, happy place, bless you. But I can assure you that you know someone who is living in the dot, dot, dot. So let us not be afraid of that lingering tension. Let's just believe that God is somehow still capable of being present there. Let's not be like Eli. Let's instead be a people who welcome in the truth, who are proponents of a culture of truth-telling, where people are very honest about their limitations, where they're, when they're falling short, when they're feeling hopeless, when they're feeling helpless. And then let's be people who are willing to be sad with them, to grieve with them. Do you know how hard that is? to say, as much as I hate this feeling, I'm going to be with you in it. But then, to be blessed alongside with them as we learn how to mourn with them. I'm not saying, by the way, that we shouldn't pray for each other. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying at all. Some of you are in grief and you're ready for the prayer. You're ready for someone to pray something over you, the gospel over you. You want that. And like, if that's you, bless you, truly. Let's do it. Let's get to it. What I'm saying is, are we honest about what's happening in our hearts? That's my question. That's all. Because the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' reign and rule, is for the pure of heart. And I don't know about happy endings and solved problems in your stories. I can't promise any of those. But I do believe God shows up to the Hannahs of the world, who are brave enough to tell the truth, who are brave enough to say, I'm at the absolute end of my rope. I am paralyzed by my limits, and I'm terrified. I'm scared. He does not call that foolishness. He does not call that worthless. This God is the one who says, in your limits, I'll bring my strength. Because the kingdom of God belongs to one such as these. <clears throat> um, to close, I do want to return to Hannah. I said I would. I debated on doing this because if you can't tell, I think the modern American expression of Christianity has a problem with trying to like skip to happy endings. Hence the tone of this sermon, which I really do submit with as much humility as I possibly can. But I do think we are weird and uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. I, I know I am. And so we're desperate to skip the sadness. I know that's my tendency. But whether we have a bad relationship with grief and hope or like sort of overemphasize one over the other, the fact remains Hannah's story does end in hope. And I think we should talk about it. 
and you can do with it what you will. God shows up to Hannah, and eventually she gives birth to a little boy named Samuel. And 1 Samuel chapter 2 tells the story about how Hannah, who, after having exposed the most raw interior of her heart before God and man, is met by God and who, in response, bursts into song. I'm going to read the highlight reel here. My heart exults in the Lord. My horn, um, this is an ancient symbol for status. It's like the, her, her reputation is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation or your rescuing. You rescued me. There is none holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you. The bows of the mighty are broken, like the bow and arrow. The feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry, well, they've ceased to be, they've ceased to hunger. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. Do you see what's happening in this song? After Hannah laid bare her limits, her pains, her honest, raw, truth-ridden reality, her heart is peacefully tender, full of trust, and ready for the Lord's presence and power. Some of us have yet to experience that. This is Hannah's story. It's not a promise the way God shows up, but it did happen to her. And I think that as Hannah sings about the great reversal, that God sees and honors the poor and the broken in spirit and the humble, the, the meek and the mourners, those who have deep hunger and thirst for righteousness, that he lifts them up, that we can somehow take heart and know that this act of truth-telling, expressing with honesty the pain and limits of life, will be met by his strength. Okay, Hannah's song ends with one final line. I know I'm at time, but watch this. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Next slide. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn status of his anointed, or Mashiach, Messiah. This final line shocks the reader because you've just finished reading a song about God empowering who? The weak, the lowly, the broken, the honest. According to Hannah, God has his sights set on the least of these, the Hannahs of the world. You with me? And yet, the final line of the poem is about God empowering and giving strength to whom? The king, the anointed Messiah. Now, wait a minute. Does the king fall into that category? This conundrum forces you, the reader, into a profound meditation. Whoever this anointed king is that the Lord intends to empower he will somehow maintain this mysterious economy of God, that the lowly and the poor are the ones to whom the kingdom is given. Whatever this kingly strength and empowerment looks like, it will manifest itself in such a way that the hands of this world will be the first ones met by the rule and reign of this king, even in their weakness. I'd like to invite Marshall up. Um, before we go into ministry time, my, my, my prayer for you is that the, you invite the Holy Spirit to help you tell the truth about your hearts this week. While our emotions are not reality in totality, our emotions are indicators of reality. They don't need to be dismissed or bottled up or swept under the rug in a sense of panic. They need to be processed and they need to be worked through. And only then can we mature into a new way of being where we're not overwhelmed by them, but rather where we healthily allow them to enrich our lives, playing an integral role in the transformation as people made in God's image, emotionally healthy spirituality. And so my hope is that as you ask God to show you your limits today, and when you come face to face with them, I want you to know that it's okay to feel sad about them. There's no pressure to feel sad. Some of you are such jolly people by nature that you don't have anything to feel sad about. That's great. Oh, bless you. But in the room right now are a lot of limited people processing a lot of deep wounds, a lot of pains. And there are just a lot of Hannahs in here. And I think we ought to ask God to remove the dismissive spirit of Eli and ask instead for eyes to see the heart, to see those people for the valuable blessed treasures that they are in God's kingdom despite their limitations. Marsh, you can go for it. Hey, guys. 
How you doing? Doing good? All right. Uh, my name is Marshall, and um, I'm the one of one of the pastors. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and um, we're going to transition into kind of a, a time of of reflection. I I had I had an, a little bit of an agenda this morning that I'm I might I might scrap. I'm not sure yet. I was going to take a little bit of a turn and talk a little bit more, kind of a pastoral word of exhortation for us, but but I think that there's something pregnant in the room following what what Jace just preached, and so we're going to make just like a little bit of space to make sure that uh, that it, it fully lands, okay? So uh, you can just stay seated if you'd like, or you can stand if you'd like, whatever posture is most comfortable for you, but let's just, let's just kind of take a, a couple minutes to be quiet, and um, and let the Lord settle what he is saying to each of us. So come Holy Spirit. The, the, the message we just heard was so full of power and invitation. And I ask God that as we quiet ourselves, that the, the little seeds that you have sown into each one of us, the little things that you have highlighted, to each one of us as we listened um, would be given just a minute to, to take root. step. Um, I do I do want to take a little bit of a turn, okay? So let's come up for air, take a breath. All right. Um, last weekend, uh, our board went away on our annual board retreat. Um, our el- it's, a, it's an elder board, a group of people that God has raised up uh, as sort of as leaders who hold the life of the church um, that, that hold the, the doctrine and teaching of the church, that care for the pastors and members of the church, and we all got away. And then we also oversee finances and all of that sort of stuff too. We got away for a weekend, uh, and we sought God, we talked through things for the years. It was a really productive and powerful time. And during that time, God highlighted basically three really key things that we feel like God wants to do in our church this year. And he wants to do it starting with the, the elders. Like we had some real time of reflection, repentance, and prayer. And we want to take it to, you know, our pastors and our leaders and the rest of the congregation. We, we feel like it's an invitation for all of us. And then we had a week of prayer and fasting. Uh, that we just finished up this week, where we had uh, twice-a-day prayer meetings. Many of us fasted and gave up food in different capacities um, and sought the Lord, and we felt like the Lord was kind of highlighting some of those things through that time as well. So I just wanted to share those uh, words with you um, as an invitation and exhortation that I think that God wants us to hold um, for the coming months. Uh, the first thing that we felt like God was highlighting, very simple, is a renewed sort of passion um, and dedication to vineyard groups. Um, these are our life groups. These are our prayer groups. These are our women's Bible studies and men's groups and different things that we are doing that, that are just opportunities for us as a community to gather together outside of the Sunday morning gathering. And this is, we, we, what we realize is we've moved to a point where we offer groups instead of being a church that is made up of these groups. And so uh, we're not going to linger here long, but in the months ahead, you can expect a lot of pressure, like a ton of pressure to join a vineyard group or to start a vineyard group. You can come to mine after our baby is born and 
we have some semblance of normalcy, we'll be starting up a group. Uh, I hope that my wife's okay with me saying that from the stage. Vineyard groups. The second thing that we really felt like God has been highlighting, and he's been doing it for a lot of months now, is this idea that God has made the vineyard, um, uh, one of our identities is a hospital. That people who come uh, broken by the world or from the church or in very, all kinds of capacities, that people come to this community uh, broken, looking to receive some healing. And there are times where we feel more like an ER waiting room than a fully functioning hospital. We, we can sometimes end up just being a space where it's a whole bunch of sick and pain and broken people coughing on each other uh, and no one knows how to bring healing. But we feel like God is really calling us to lean into being a community with an orientation towards healing because being healthy is not a destination. It's an orientation that we're all moving towards. And that's part of why we're doing this Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series right now, but we wanna keep pressing into that. And so we want you to know that if you come in here feeling like you are broken from past church experiences or family wounds, or you're just beginning this journey of, of like opening up the, uh, what's underneath the surface and you're like, what's going on here? that this is a safe place for you. We want to lean into that. But the third thing, that this is a really powerful thing. I think that this is one of the most urgent and um, one of the most urgent exhortations God is giving us, which is just sort of a reflection that we need to come back to the heart of worship as a church. And, what I, and, and, and that is not to say that we don't have amazing musicians. We do. Like God has gifted us profoundly with really incredible worship people. But... Uh, way, way back, uh, before this church even existed, uh, it started out as a prayer meeting that happened uh, in, the, in Stephen Lane Fish's living room. And they gathered to pray for the city. They gathered to be in God's presence, to worship together. And that over the course of time of really devoted prayer and worship, God said that if, if we continue to pray for our city, that God would birth a church from our prayers and prayer would always be at the center of it. That God's presence would always be the very heart of this church. And so I grew up in, here in Vancouver and I didn't go to this church, but I knew of this church as those crazy worship people. Like they were worshipers. They were Holy Spirit people. And then uh, long story short, I moved, I was, my wife and I, we were part of this ministry in Kansas City that was full of famous worship leaders before they were famous that were leading worship in these prayer rooms and it was this really extravagant place. And then we moved home for my wife to do grad school and we came to the vineyard and I sat right about where Brandon Peacock is sitting on that first day, yep. And uh, there was this like 19 year old girl with an acoustic guitar singing a love song to Jesus. And I was broken in God's presence because these are just people who are singing to Jesus. Like there's no pretense or show. There's no formality here. We're just singing to Jesus. And then I joined these prayer meetings that would meet in the early morning. And these are just people who are hungry for Jesus. And somewhere along the way, probably when I was in charge, um, we, we started to lose that. We we're like, oh, we, we've got the presence thing handled. Like, that's fine. We, that, that's good. We got to, like, figure out small groups. We got to figure out justice and outreach and whatever else. And then somewhere along the way, worship became not what it was. And I don't feel like God is hitting us with a stick and saying, you, you lost your heart. I think that he's welcoming us back and he's just saying, come and pour out your whole heart to me. And so that's what I feel, that's what I feel like God is saying to us as a church. And what does that mean for us? Does it, how, how do we do things differently? Well, I think that it means that we bring our whole self. I think it means, that, <laughs> I think it means we bring our whole self on time because we start with worship. Worship is not a warm up. It's all of it. I think that it means that when we gather together in our small groups, in our life groups, in our prayer groups, that we prioritize the presence of God as first and foremost. And I, I just wanna, like, I'm just standing in front of all of you making a, a bold commitment. This is what I'm going after this year. And I think that I want you all to join me in going after this heart of worship.
Now that said, the other side of it is that as we started to pursue this thing and repent and whatever else, blah, wells of grief and pain started to come up for me. And I think will probably come up for most of us. All of this is connected. Worship, and community, and healing in a hospital, all of it is connected. I'm convinced that we will not find he healing apart from God's presence. We will not find healing apart from God's presence together in community. But I also don't believe that, um, that we will be able to just la-di-da, happily sing to Jesus without him beginning to bring some of the things. So you guys want to go on that journey with me? Awesome. Will you stand with me? I'd like to invite the prayer team to come on up. We went a little bit long this morning. I'm sorry. Um, but the kids downstairs are fine. <laughs> tip your, maybe tip your Sunday school teacher. <laughs> We're not going to linger long here, but all of these people who are up front uh, have been trained and are trustworthy uh, ministry people. They would love nothing more than to pray for you, to pray God's blessing over you, to share what they feel like God is saying to them for you, to just encourage you or to weep with you or whatever it is that God wants to do. All of them are trustworthy. Um, they all could pray to the deepest parts of my heart. So I want to invite you, if you need prayer for anything, please come forward. If you'd like to just simply sit in some space with the Holy Spirit, you can come up at any time and just hang out up here at the front. We'll either pray for you or leave you alone. If you need to have a Hannah moment, you can do that here. But I'm going to pray and we're going to dismiss and then we're just going to make some space here if you'd like to receive prayer, okay? So Holy Spirit, we thank you for um, not just what you did this morning, but what you are inviting us into as we move forward. We, we want to be people who are simple, normal folks who simply sing to Jesus and pour out our love to him. The psalmist says, give me an undivided heart. Lord, we pray that we would be pure in heart, telling the truth as we worship you. We love you, Lord. I pray your blessing over each person who came here this morning. Um, as we go from here, God, just be with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, my friends. You are dismissed. Please don't rush off. Hang out. Get to know some people. And um, we'll see you next week.